If you remember just a little bit about what we were learning last week, it'll help set up the context. Last week, we, well, I think last week he was giving us these, these examples of, you know, the Roman army is, everything's in order, there's a hierarchy, not everybody has the same job, different people have different positions and so on. Same thing in a body, there's different members of the body. Uh, each member is important, but not every member is the same. Then he talked about the priesthood and the Levites. He said, you know, the priests aren't the Levites, the Levites aren't the priests, and the layman isn't the, isn't either. And and uh, he talked about these different rankings, uh, different commandments for different people, according to the Torah. All these different examples he was giving us. And he said, and then there's the sacrifices. You don't just bring any sacrifice anytime. There's specific sacrifices at appointed times. And you can't just bring them anywhere, you bring them specifically to Jerusalem. And he concluded all of this with the words, anyone who um, uh, does contrary to this, to these uh, commandments of the Torah receives the death penalty. And he said, you see, brothers, as we've been considered worthy of greater knowledge, so much more are we exposed to danger. All right, so that sets us up for chapter 42. And in chapter 42, uh, he's going to lay out a similar hierarchy of the assembly. This time he's going to, he's bringing it home closer to make his point. He says, he begins this way, he says, The apostles received the gospel from us, oh no, for us, the apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus the Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, was sent forth from God. So he wants us to see the relationship. So then, Christ is from God, and the apostles are from Christ. So the Messiah is sent from God, and the apostles are sent from the Messiah. So this is showing this order, this hierarchy, right? It reminded me of the verse in John 17, where the Master says to his 12 disciples, he says, actually he's praying to, he's praying to the Father, and he says, regarding his 12 disciples, he says, as you sent me into the world, it's one of his favorite his favorite titles for himself is the one sent by the Father. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them, speaking of his apostles, into the world. So we see this relationship. Hashem sends his son, and the revelation comes through his son. The son sends the apostles. As we lay out the assembly, then this makes the apostles the first tier of authority in the assembly of Messiah. Both, therefore, came of the will of God in good order, having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and full of faith in the word of God. The apostles went forth with the firm assurance that the Holy Spirit gives, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was about to come. There's a lot in that verse. First, it says, having therefore received their orders. What are the, their orders that they have received? Go. Preach, right? Go deliver the gospel. And also the commandment to testify. Testify to what you've seen. Testify to the risen Messiah. So they've received their orders, and so they're fully assured by the resurrection. They don't have any doubt, uh, unlike us who struggle with doubt all the time. The apostles didn't have much doubt because uh, to be an apostle in the first place, you had to have a visitation from the risen Messiah during the 40 days after his resurrection. You couldn't just be, you know, you couldn't just, it wasn't like something you could apply for. You couldn't like say, you know, look in the Jerusalem Times for a classifier and say, oh, I see they're hiring apostles. This is something that the risen Messiah appointed you to, a task that he appointed you to. So they're assured by the resurrection 
of the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, and full of faith in the word of God. Because they're studied men, they're learned men. They went forth with the firm assurance that the Holy Spirit gives. Uh, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was about to come. Now, hold on. I remember one of the first times I taught this. Uh, not this passage. I was teaching the idea, teaching the concept that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that that's the gospel. That the gospel message is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A lot of people are very upset. Well, as you would expect, they said, I thought the gospel message was... Jesus died for our sins. Caught a lot of heat for it. So, I have a little bit of delight in finding Clement say that the apostles went forth, and I quote, the apostles went forth preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was about to come, which is exactly the same as the gospel message we find on the lips of the Master and the lips of John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? So preaching both in the country and in the towns, they appointed their first fruits when they attested them by the Spirit. All right, so what are their first fruits in the towns and in the... In the country just refers to rural areas, villages, that sort of thing. In the towns refers to cities, population centers. What are their first fruits? Uh, it says that preaching both in the country and the towns, they appointed their first fruits. Well, Paul uses this language. First fruits refers to the first believers. The apostle comes to a new place, he comes to a new location, he goes into the synagogue, he begins to teach. The first people to become believers, the first people to grab the message, and these are considered their first fruits. And when they had tested them by the Spirit, these first fruits, make sure they're not bad fruits. A lot of times your first fruits are bad fruits, I suppose. When they had tested them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons for the future believers. They appointed them to be bishops and deacons for future believers. So these first fruits, the apostles, especially you know Paul in his ministry, which is an itinerant ministry, he, he comes into a place and appoints some believers and then uh, he, he finds some believers, makes some believers. These are going to be the leadership of the congregation that hopefully will form there in his absence. It says, he appointed them, after testing them by the Spirit, appoints them to be bishops and deacons for the future believers. Bishops is, uh, you may, maybe people don't like the word bishops. Maybe that's why our English versions translate it as overseers and that sort of thing. But bishops is the old word, isn't it? Protestants don't like the word bishop. Bishop. Because a bishop is a guy with a tall hat. Right? He's a guy wearing red. And has a big tall hat. Or, alternatively, he's a piece on a chessboard. That's what a bishop is to a Protestant. In a, this context, the bishop is just the head elder. There's a body of elders that presides over an assembly. And one of them is the lead elder, that's the bishop. And uh, the Greek word is episkopos, a bishop. It's an overseer, a president. corresponds to, I think, uh, very well to the Hebrew term nasi, which we translate as president or prince. In the Jerusalem assembly, we've learned in past classes 
that James filled this role as the bishop over the Jerusalem believers. And therefore, since the, the Jerusalem congregation had authority over all the congregations, James was the bishop over the whole church, so to speak. So that's the level of bishop. The bishop is the chief uh, presbyteros, presbyteros. That's the Greek word for elder. And it just corresponds to the Hebrew zakan, or zakanim, the elders. Elders don't necessarily need to be old, we've learned, as, as uh, Paul tells Timothy. Don't let anyone criticize you, you know, for your youth. But we have to remember that at the time that he writes that, it's pretty late in his ministry, and Timothy's probably in his 40s by then, I'm thinking. So, uh, that's what he means by young. He felt he was a little young to be an elder at the age of 45 or so. Then he mentions deacons, deacons, diakonos, is a servant. We first encountered the institution of deacons in the book of Acts with the appointment of the seven and um, then it, beca it seems to be a role in the, in the congregations that's just under the level of elder. It's like a, a lay leader, so to speak, um, under the level of elder that are uh, concerned with the service of the community. So, so, so the way that the apostles laid it out, they said, you know, we shouldn't be waiting tables, we should really be teaching. So they appointed the deacons to take care of the distribution of the charitable, uh, the charitable distribution of food. Just as an example of the difference. Nevertheless, deacons are supposed to teach as well. All right, so you have these three offices. I want you to get these three offices in your mind because this is the early church. There is a, at least a, this is the leadership of the early church. Under the level of apostle, right under the level of apostle, is the bishop. The bishop is the head of a body of elders. Under the elders, and when, um, when it's time to appoint a new bishop, of course the elders appoint one of their number to the post. So we can see this, for example, in the Jerusalem congregation, there is, uh, that we, we see elders... Uh, James and the elders are referred to several times. And then after the death of James, uh, there's an, a succession that takes place. Someone else moves into his place. That's Simon, son of uh, Alphaeus. Simon, the son of Alphaeus, is a relative of James. And after the death of Simon, the son of Alphaeus, there's a, someone else moves into his place, uh, also a relative. But these relatives came from the body of the elders. Now we've got our, our geography of the early church down. Any questions about that? A lot of times people get really tangled up on this terminology, either because they don't like the idea of authority in a congregation. That's often the case. Protestants especially have trouble with this, as I mentioned. Um, or because their own experience in their churches, you know, it didn't quite function like that. The, you know, the, it was different. You know, the, maybe the elders had no power, no authority. The pastor did everything, and he was, he was the guy in charge. Or maybe the pastor had no authority, and the board of deacons was running everything. You know, it's 
you know, there's all sorts of different scenarios and ways that the terms have been defined. Clement goes on to say, now this was no new thing that they did. This wasn't like, uh, they didn't just make this up, in other words. They didn't just say, let's see, we need to come up with church government here. We're starting a new religion and everything. We need to come up with church government. What should we do? Uh, they actually, this system is, is you know, taken from the synagogue. This is essentially the synagogue hierarchy that they've borrowed. So it says, this is no new thing they did. For indeed, something had been written about bishops and deacons many years ago. For somewhere, thus says the scripture, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. What's interesting about this passage, well, there's a lot of things that are interesting about this passage. This is uh, Isaiah 60:17, which reads in my New American Standard as, I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. But the early believers applied this passage to James, James the bishop, James the overseer. Uh, when they read it, I will make peace your administrator and uh, righteousness, that is one of the names of James, James the righteous. I will make the tzaddik, the righteous one, your overseer. So it was a very important passage among the early believers, uh, because they applied it to their leadership, their own their own leaders in Jerusalem. Then the tre- the Greek version says it this way: it says, "I will make your princes peaceful, and your bishops righteous." And it uses it translates here bishops. It uses this word, you know, episkopos, but it doesn't say diakonos. The other word is not diakonos, which is interesting, because Clement's version inverts the order, puts the bishops first, unlike uh, the, the Septuagint, and he substitutes the word deacons in here, diakonos. So Clement's version now reads, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith instead of peace. Maybe you get the idea that Clement is uh, translating this himself, that he's offering his own translation on Isaiah 60, 17, rather than just copying from the Septuagint, which he often does. Or maybe it's just sort of off the top of his head. Yeah, someplace there's something that says, you know, and then you kind of loosely paraphrase what it says. We see here a proof text that the early believers were using to justify their ecclesiastical structure, and they applied it to their own leadership. And it is, is it any wonder that those who in Christ were entrusted by God with such a work, that's the apostles, uh, that they appointed the officials just mentioned. Doesn't it make sense that they did this? After all, the blessed Moses, who was a faithful servant in all God's houses, as we've learned, recorded in the sacred books all the injunctions given to him, and the rest of the prophets followed him, bearing witness with him to the laws that he enacted. I don't quite understand what's going on here, but I think that he's comparing Moses to the bishop and the prophets then to the elders and and the deacons under him. It reminds me of a passage from Pirkei Avot where it says, you know, the first, you know, Avot 1.1 where it says, Moses received the Torah, he transmitted it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets. It's the kind of this line of oral transmission, but also perhaps a line of authority. So he recorded in the sacred books all the injunctions given to him, and the rest of the prophets followed him, bearing witness with him to the laws that he enacted. Now we're going to get a story. 
But when jealousy arose concerning the priesthood, and the tribes were quarreling about which of them was to be decorated with the glorious title, he commanded the leaders of the twelve tribes to bring him rods inscribed with the names of each tribe. You know what this story is, don't you? Korah's rebellion, right? And the blossoming of Aaron's staff. I think it would be good for us tonight to briefly revisit that text from Numbers chapter 17. And the reason I want to do that is so that we can see the differences between the actual version of the story that's in the Torah and the story as Clement tells it. Because Clement is going to be telling it with all of the Midrashic embellishments that he's received from the apostles. And so this will will give us an opportunity to see a passage of Torah as the apostles taught it. I'm in Numbers chapter 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each father's household. So this is a staff, you know, get get a staff. You know, the Hebrew word for staff, what is it here? Mate or Shevet here? I don't remember. I think it's probably Mate. Uh, But Mate and Shevet, two different words for staff, are synonym. Both of them also mean tribe. So, uh, you know, a a Shevet is a tribe, it's a staff. A Mate is a tribe, it's a staff. Twelve staffs representing twelve tribes. It's um, hominem, I guess. Anyway, it's the same. The word means two different things, is my point. So twelve rods from each of the twelve tribes. Uh, and you shall write each uh, name of the father's household on, on his rod. And write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for the tribe of Levi. For there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. Then deposit them in, in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. This is Hashem's instruction. Okay, so Moses does this. He spoke to the sons of Israel. All the leaders gave him a rod, each one of them, each leader according to the father's household, twelve rods with the rod of Aaron among their rods. Moses deposited rods before the Lord in the tent of testimony. Now, On the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted, put forth buds, produced blossoms, bore ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. That's the story. That's how we know Aaron is the legitimate high priest. He holds the priesthood, and the tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. And that proves it. That's, that's what that story is about. All right, now let's read Clement's version of the story. So, you know, these tribes, they're arguing, they're quarreling about which was to be decorated with the glorious title. He commanded the leaders to bring them rods. He says, and taking them, he tied and sealed them with the signet rings of the leaders of the tribes. What is a signet ring? It didn't say that in the Torah, by the way, that he did this with the signet rings. It says, you shall write each name on his rod. So a signet ring is like a stamper, an individualized stamper that you can use for your signature. So you have everyone has a unique signet ring, and they can stamp it into clay or or, or what or into wax and leave their sign, and and that's as good as as good as your signature. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it? There's a signet ring. Signet ring. Why a signet ring? It didn't say signet ring in the Torah. There's a, there's a passage in Jeremiah, 
where Hashem says to the Davidic king, he says, I will take you like a signet ring and cast you off. And then in another passage, he says, I'll take you and put you back on. So it alludes to the Davidic dynasty, I think, uh, similar to Reuben's signet that Tamar absconded with. Yes. Signet rings of the leaders of the tribes, and he deposited them on the table of God in the tent of testimony. It's like one of those pictures where you got, two, you know, when you were a kid and you had, it's like you had two pictures and you had to identify ten things that were different, you know, like to find the differences in the in the two pictures. Like, oh, look, the seal, you know, this one has, the seal has a ball on his nose and in this one the seal has, you know, a cube on his nose. I don't know. <laughs> right? It's like that. That's what we're doing. What's different here? It says he uh, he took them, he tied them, he sealed them with the signet rings, and he deposited them on the table of God in the tent of testimony. It didn't say on the table of God in the Torah. What is, what's the table of God? Well, that would be the table of shoe bread, the uh, table of the d- bread of the presence, where you lay out the twelve loaves. I, I imagine. Uh, so he puts on the table of God in the tent of testimony. Then, having shut the tent, he sealed the keys as well as the doors. The tent doesn't have doors. Uh, so, alternatively, this might be, you see down in the apparatus that some versions read it as, as well as the rods. So, he sealed the keys as well as the rods. So here we have this, uh, what's going on? Moses seals up the tent of meeting. You know, he doesn't want anyone... Slipping in the tent, substituting some blossoming staff for their own. And furthermore, he doesn't want anybody saying, Oh, we know how you did that trick. You were, went, when we're all sleeping, you went in the tent of meeting and you swapped out Aaron's staff with this one that's blossoming and that sort of thing. Now, none of this is in the Torah, is it? But this is, this is Clement's version of the story. It makes good sense. He would seal up the tent of meeting uh, for this this big test, I think there's an allusion here to the um, burial of the master. You know, when they closed the tomb, uh, it says in Matthew 27, along with the guard that they set at the tomb, it says they set a seal on the stone. The Romans put the, a, a Roman seal on that stone. So that uh, they could say, look, no one's been in here. The seal is, is, has not been broken. In the Gospel of Peter, the apocryphal Gospel of Peter, in fact, it says they affixed seven seals to the stone. I think, so I think what our, our apostolic version of the story of the blossom of the staff is intentionally alluding to the death or the burial of the master, the sealing of, of the tomb of the master. Because what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen. The staff that's left in here is going to come back to life. It's going to, it's going to resurrect. Staves are, are, you know, they're not alive. They're dead pieces. But here it's going to resurrect and bear fruit. So it's a symbol of the resurrection. So he sealed the keys as well as the doors and he said to them, Brothers, the tribe whose rod blossoms is the one God has chosen to be priest and to minister to him. 
Now, when the morning came, he called all Israel together, all 600,000 men, showed them the seals, opened the tent, uh, brought out the rods. The rod of Aaron was found not only to have blossomed, but also to be bearing fruit. Almonds, right? What do you think, dear friends? Did not Moses know beforehand that this would happen? Of course he knew. So why did he do it if he knew what was going to happen? In order that disorder might not arise in Israel, he did it anyway so that the name of the true and only God might be glorified to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's our, what, fourth? I think fourth doxology so far. I think that's pretty great. I like that. It's like, uh, you know, the apostolic version of the story. It's very similar to what we saw with the story of, um, of Rahab. When we encountered the story of Rahab, all of a sudden there's all this other stuff going on in the story, right? It's like, you know, ordinarily Clement will just read us a text. He'll just quote a long, long text. But he gets to these, he gets to these where he has all this tradition around them and he just tells the story himself. Our apostles likewise knew, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that there would be strife over the bishop's office. This implies that the Clement heard a tradition from Peter, or from Paul, or one of the apostles, he, he, that he heard an oral tradition, of some saying of the master about leadership, that there would be trouble over leadership. We can think of a few sayings of the master around leadership. The one who wants to serve... Uh, Lead must be the servant of all, and uh, and the first should be the last, and um, so on and so forth. There's lots of, uh, Yeshua gives us lots of sayings about leadership. He says you're not to rule over one another, you know, despotically like the Gentiles do, and, and these kinds of sayings. But I can't think of any saying where he says something about there being strife, that there will be strife over leadership, especially as it says here, you know, it seems to say inter the bishop's office, strife over the bishop's office. I don't know. So I suspect that we have here a lost um, saying of, of the master that Clement and his readers were familiar with. Anyway, our apostles likewise knew that through our Lord Jesus Christ there will be strife over the bishop's office. For this reason, therefore, having received complete foreknowledge, they, they knew it would happen. There was no, they, they saw this coming. So what did they do? They appointed officials, mentioned earlier, bishops, elders, deacons. Uh, they appointed officials, mentioned earlier, and afterwards they gave the offices a permanent character. That is, if they should die... Other approved men should should succeed to their ministry. There's different ways that this is the Greek here is understood. The Greek here is very difficult, and you have a long long footnotes in the apparatus explaining the difficulties. There's a couple different ways to read this. Uh, it could be if they, the apostles, should die, other approved men should su succeed to their ministry. But that's not a possible. That that you can't mean that, because like I said, you can't become an apostle. You know, it's not like it's like, oh, Peter died. We need a new apostle. You know, let's throw in, you know, Sam over here. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to have had a commissioning and a visitation from the risen Messiah. So more likely it means if they should die, that is the bishops and elders appointed by the apostles, 
other approved men succeed to the ministry, their positions. It's not up for like a, it shouldn't be politics, I guess. Those, therefore, who were appointed by them, or later on, by other reputable men, with the consent of the whole assembly, and who have ministered to the flock of Christ blamelessly, humbly, peaceably, unselfishly, for a long time, who have been spoken, well spoken of by all, and here he's going to drop the hammer, these men we consider to be unjustly removed from their ministry. So all this time, what are we in? 44 chapters? It took 44 chapters to get to his point. This is the point. This is the whole point of the argument since we first started. He considers the men who have been, the, the leadership of Corinth that have been ousted to have been removed unjustly from their ministry. All right, so he goes on. To buttress this. For it will be no small sin for us if we depose from the bishop's office those who have offered the gifts blamelessly and in holiness. Blessed are those elders who have gone on ahead. Those presbyters who have gone on ahead. That is, who are already dead. Who took their departure at a mature and fruitful age for they need no longer fear that someone might remove them from their established place. For we see that you have removed certain people, their good conduct notwithstanding. From You've removed certain people, their, their good conduct notwithstanding. You've removed them from the ministry which had been held in honor by them blamelessly. All right, so there it is. That's the point of the book, of the whole epistle of Clement. Chapter 44 is the... Um, we're not done yet. Don't get your hopes up. We're going to get two more chapters. I'm just saying this is the this is the center. We've been working up towards this, and now we're going to. So it's kind of like we reach the top of the hill, and it's uh, all downhill from here. Coasting. Think of coasting. So you see what Clement's complaining about. He's lamenting. Look, God sent the Messiah. The Messiah sent the apostles. The apostles appointed the elders. The elders appointed successors to their eldership. And you just ousted them. That means you, you these elders that you ousted, you're uh, throwing off the authority of the elders who appointed them. And the authority of the apostles who appointed them and the authority of Christ who sent them and the authority of God. Be contentious, he says in chapter 45, and this is sarcastic, I believe. Be contentious and zealous, brothers, but about things that relate to salvation. I'm not sure if that's a good translation or not. But if it is, the implication is that, is that uh, look, if, if you're going to get worked up about stuff, you know, Get worked up about good deeds and mitzvahs and, like you said, you know, being, being zealous for good deeds. You have searched the scriptures, which are true, which are given by the Holy Spirit, and you know that nothing unrighteous or counterfeit is written in them. You will not find that righteous people, in the whole Bible, you search the whole Bible, go ahead, read the whole Bible, you'll never find that righteous people have ever been thrust out by holy men. The righteous were persecuted 
but it was by the lawless. They were imprisoned, but it was by the unholy. They were stoned by transgressors. They were slain by those who had conceived a detestable and unrighteous jealousy. Despite these sufferings, they endured nobly. So what's his point here? His point is, if, you're, if it turns out that you're ousting and persecuting holy men and godly men, whose side are you on? You don't ever find this happening in the Bible. You find godly people are being persecuted all the time, but it's the wicked people. Are. For example, he says, for what shall we say, brothers? Now, what, what does it mean when we read, what shall we say? What then? We're introducing a false premise when we say that. All right, so here's our false premise. Daniel was cast into the lion's den by those who feared God. Was it God-fearers that, that threw Daniel in the lion's den? See, false premise. No, it was not. Or were Ananias, Azarias, and Mishael, you know who Ananias, Azarias, and Mishael are, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their Babylonian names are way cooler. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are their Hebrew names. So were Ananias, Azarias, and Mishael shut up in the fire furnace by those devoted to the magnificent and glorious worship of the Most High? No, they were shut up in the furnace by people who were, who were devoted to worshiping a, an image of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Of course not. Who then were the people who did these things? Now he'll tell you. He says, I'll tell you who they were abominable men, full of all wickedness, who were stirred up to such a pitch of wrath that they tortured cruelly those who served God with a holy and blameless resolve. Uh, they did not re realize that the Most High is the champion and the protector of those who with pure conscience worship His excellent name. Which is to say to the Corinthians, Hashem will be the champion of these elders you've ousted. And then he ends that with, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Fifth? Fifth doxology. All right. Now, pay attention to the doxology because what, what makes something a doxology? There's an, there's an ascription of glory to God, right? And you can add other things to that, like a splendor, exaltation, whatever. There's a statement of a length of term forever and ever, until such and such. And then there's a conclusion, Amen. Right? Now listen to this verse, verse 8. But those who patiently endured with confidence inherited glory and honor. They were exalted and had their names recorded by God as their memorial forever and ever. Amen. You see what he's done here is he's He's built this verse on a doxology. So you have those who patiently endured with confidence. To them be glory and honor and exaltation forever and ever. Amen. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. It's, a, it's a, an artistic flourish on a liturgical form in this verse. But what does it mean that they were exalted and had their names recorded by God as their memorial? Memorial. Had their names recorded by God as their memorial. I believe this is a reference 
to the season that we're in right now, where we're, Rosh Hashanah and being written in the Book of Life. Yes, thank you. Book of Life. Um, there's a passage in the Torah that seems pertinent. Exodus seventeen fourteen. Write this in a book as a memorial. Chapter 46. Therefore, we too, brothers, must follow examples such as these. For it is written, follow the saints, for those who follow them will be sanctified. Not a verse in the Bible. We, once again, we don't know where Clement got this. But it's a very Jewish sentiment. To uh, You want to be a tzaddik? Follow the tzaddikim. You know, follow the paths of the tzaddikim. Follow the tzaddikim. Uh, follow the saints. Follow the holy. For those who follow them will become holy. Uh, it's, it's a common Jewish sentiment. Again, it says in another place, With the innocent man will you, be, you will be innocent. With the elect you will be elect. But with the perverse man, you will deal perversely. That's, of course, that's Psalm 18. Let us therefore join with the innocent and the righteous. You want to be with the innocent and the righteous and not with the perverse. For these are the elect of God. Now, here's, this is going to be a great passage. This, is, this would be a good passage for, for all of us in the days of repentance. The tshuva passage for us to hold on to. Why is there strife in angry outbursts and dissension and schisms and conflict among you? Do we not have one God and one Messiah and one Spirit of grace which was poured out upon us? And is there not one calling in Christ? So why do we tear and rip apart the members of Christ and rebel against our own body and reach such a level of insanity that we forget that we are members of one another. Remember the words of Yeshua, our Lord. For he said, Woe to that man! It would have been good for him if he had not been born. Then that he should cause one of my elect to sin. It would have been better for him to have been tied to a millstone and cast into the sea than that he should pervert one of my elect. Not a direct quote of... It's, I, I find it in a couple different passages. I, I've, I would point you to Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 to 7, Luke 17, verses 1 and 2, and Matthew 26, 24. I put all those together and you could come up with this quotation from Clement. We've seen when he quotes the Master before that he doesn't seem to be quoting out of the Gospel. Instead, Clement is, seems to be relying on an oral tradition. As a disciple of Peter, he would have memorized the teachings of Yeshua. So they're just, they're on his, you know, they're coming out of his head. Uh, so that, th what's interesting is here, uh, is, is the way he renders it. it it's probably the same teaching that we have in Matthew and have in Luke. But this is how Clement is translating it. As he, instead of, when Yeshua gives us this passage, he says, one of these little ones, one of my little ones. Clement just 
translates that as one of my elect, one of my chosen ones. Woe to the, that man. It would have been better for him not to be born. Yeshua says that only once. He says that in regard to Judas. Yeah, Judas is the one who turned turned against the fellowship of of, of the well, it turned against the master, obviously, but he betrayed he betrayed the fellowship of the disciples in so doing. He says in verse nine, "Your schism has perverted many; it has brought many to despair, plunged many into doubt, and caused all of us to sorrow. And yet, your rebellion still continues." And that's where we'll finish tonight. I understand the the sentiment here. I don't think, as a believer, you know, there's we have we've. we've we face a lot of trials and difficulties as believers. You know, there's there, we, we struggle with doubt and guilt. A lot of you know, doubt and guilt, doubt and guilt. You get a lot of that. <laughs> we struggle with um, persecution, horrible persecution. Uh, we struggle with um, you know, we, we we fight the devil. We, we come into close contact and fighting Satan. It's spiritual warfare. And we, um, we, we go through terrible tests and trials. and uh, That's just all normal for, for being a disciple, for being a believer. That's just life, right? And we prevail. And none of those things, I mean, you can get down in that sort of thing, but they're not necessarily disillusioning disheartening you just keep your faith you know keep your eyes on on the master and you just you know Hashem will carry you through this somehow or another it's for the good but it's not the same when it's your brothers and sisters that turn against you you know when when there's conflict with your within the assembly and with between believers it's like you know it's like a marriage almost it's kind of strange because in a marriage, there's this sacred trust, right? And uh, once it's once it's touched, it's like that's a wound forever, you know. Um, you know, it's it's not like that in most relationships in life. You know, like the people you work with, or the people you know, people you went to school with, and you know, you, even your college roommate friends or whatever, you know, best buddies. It's not like that. But with between believers, there's like this deeper you know, there's this deeper vulnerability, deeper love for one another. And love, by definition, requires this kind of vulnerability. And I think that's what the issue is. But so when Clement says, you know, your schism has perverted many, what it means by perverted many is means it's it's turned them off. It's turned them away. When they see when they, they've seen the fight, they've seen the fallout of the fight, or they've been burned by the fight, it's turned them away from from the faith, uh, it says it's brought many to despair. It's to dis, to dis, Why? Why would a fight in Corinth bring people to despair? Well, if you, they're connect, they're looking to the Corinthian community for leadership in this faith. They see the Corinthian believers fighting with each other. Like, what's the point? You know, I guess I guess these people don't. You know, what do they know? Uh, it's plunged many into doubt, and it's caused all of us to sorrow. So I think you know we can. We can all identify with that. For sure, the world looks at the many different denominations of Christianity and you know, all of 
the fighting between Christians historically and and in the present, but you know, and says there's nothing to what you believe. You know, what is this love? <laughs> no thanks, thanks, no thanks. So you understand Clement's heartache as he's trying to put this fire in Corinth out, because it's like uh, the whole the whole Christian world is watching what's going on in Corinth, I guess.